I do think that if you're an advisor and you're looking to connect with people, I think that doing media is, is a fantastic idea. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Today's interview is with Alexandra McQueen. A lot of you will recognize Alexandra. She's a fairly high profile financial planner. Uh, as we'll hear in the interview, she does a fair bit of freelance financial planning writing. Today's episode is good for CE credits in all jurisdictions. For Alberta, it'll be life only, no ANS. We don't do any accident and sickness relevant stuff here, but we do cover a lot of technical detail here around pensions and Canada Pension Plan and financial planning regulation and pro bono financial planning and a little bit of regulatory stuff even from the uh, security side here. So we cover a broad range of topics, which is nice. I do want to just take a moment here to talk about continuing education credits, and this is going to be, I guess, a little bit of a the bully pulpit situation or something like that. So the intention here, of course, is that the episodes are designed for one CE credit hour per episode. The CE credit regimes vary sort of across regulators and across the country. But in general, the principle here is that a financial advisor or financial planner gets one CE credit for every hour spent listening to content or in a seminar or uh, in some cases reading something and then usually answering quiz questions following that. I know that there are many people out there who will listen to podcast episodes like this at two or three times speed and I can't have any direct influence over how people sort of absorb the content but when you submit a CE credit certificate what you are saying is that you spent an hour on your own education. That's really what those certificates mean. I can provide a certificate, but there is a little bit of, let's call it honor system here, that says I put in that time. And it's a tough balancing act here. I feel for the regulators. And this is one of these situations where they just wanna make sure that people are putting in an honest effort on their educations. And part of the goal here is that not necessarily you spend a full hour just listening to content, but that you spend an hour where you're really thinking about how this content impacts you, your clients, your business. And it's a difference between a, a sort of canned episode like this versus a, an in-class experience. You know, in class, you might spend, let's say, 40 minutes talking about this exact set of content, and then there'd be a bunch of questions from the class. 
And that's where people would be doing some of that thinking. So it's a trade-off and we do have other CE experiences available. We have, in fact, today I'm spending the day with a group of financial planners from Southern Alberta. We'll spend the day live in class with me and we'll do that sort of you know, one hour per credit thing. And it'll be you know, probably two thirds uh, me talking and a third them talking, although they're very uh, involved bunch. So maybe it'll be a third me talking and two thirds them talking. We'll see how that balance plays out. But just going back to the, the point here, the point is that when you tell the regulators that you've done a credit hour, that that means you're really saying, I have done that one hour of education. It's not that you've necessarily done whatever, 24 quizzes or something like that, but really that you've put in the time to do that hour of education. And the expectation there is that that's sort of the bare minimum. I think that the regulators would all agree that you know, representing sort of a year of education, you're going to pick up 15 or 25, whatever the number is for the appropriate license or certification, that you're going to pick up that number of credits rather than that's the only education that you've done through the year. And I know a lot of folks will do this. A lot of folks will sort of get their continuing ed credits knocked out early in the year, and then they will go on to just take whatever education they need to further their dealings with clients or to improve their business models or whatever the case is. And really the idea there is they have the freedom to pick and choose their education through the year. They're not going and fighting for credits. And that's certainly one of the intents of this podcast is that you know that you're going to get your credits for the year from listening to the podcast. But if this is the only education you do in the year, I would suggest that you probably want to be finding other opportunities as well. And you don't have to worry about CE credits. You could go do something that's for lawyers or something that's for accountants or something that's for business owners in general. There's all kinds of stuff out there. Okay, sorry for the, uh, I don't know if that's a harsh lesson or whatever the case is, but really, I want you to think about how you conduct yourself in terms of how you're holding out to your regulators as for your CE credit requirements. The color for today's episode is red. The color for today's episode is red. Okay, let's hear from Alexandra. As you'll hear, it's a broad range of content that we cover. And following that, I have a couple of comments. We'll talk about financial planning associations and I'll just cover off one little bit of detail from the United States that she brings up in the interview. Let's hear it from Alexandra. Okay, I'm joined today by Alexandra McQueen. A lot of you will recognize Alexandra's name. She's uh, published in a number of publications, including the Globe and Mail, Money Sense, and I'm sure a few others that you're going to go over for us here, Alexandra. And not only that, but also you do some fee-only financial planning. Just want to talk a little bit about how you fill your time, Alexandra? Yes, thank you so much. Well, I'm filling my time right now with this podcast with you. But uh, I do have a number of different things that I do that kind of combine to create, you know, probably what would be the equivalent of slightly more than full-time job. But that's a deliberate choice on my part to kind of pursue a whole bunch of different things that I'm interested in. I started in the business as a financial planner. As a planner, I was a registered advisor working with Raymond James. And 
Then in 2008, the place where I was working released a lot of their staff. There was lots, if you lived through 2008 as an advisor, it's in a way it was similar to COVID. It's just that it was in terms of the impact on work life because there was a ton of layoffs, but it was really limited to that one sector. And if you weren't in financial services, you probably didn't know anything about that. But I had a bit of severance and I had a bit of time and I got to think about what is it that I really like doing and want to do and decided that I would like to focus on writing, which had not been my focus. My focus had been on being a kind of a conventional advisor working directly with clients. And then by luck and circumstance and chance, I landed an actual job as a financial writer. And there's hardly any jobs that are called financial writer. And it was with uh, a now defunct tiny fintech startup called Quima, the Quantitative Wealth Management and Analytics Company, of which Dr. Moshe Molesky was CEO. And Moshe, of course, is extremely well known and there's a professor of finance at York University, but is also globally recognized for his expertise on retirement income planning. And in the course of working for Moshe's company, he and I decided to write a book together, which was Pensionized Unestic, first published in 2010 and then an international edition in 2015. And of course, pension as your nest egg is a common one to see on uh, financial planners' shelves. I'm sure some non-financial planners to keep it on their shelf too. I'm curious about this. I've had other people who published on the podcast, but I think you're probably the only person I've had on the podcast who published a book that I actually would expect to see on, let's say, a stranger's bookshelf, if that makes sense. That's, that's interesting, yeah. I hate to be crass about it. Is there any yep. money in it, Alexander? Do you make any money writing a book oh, like no, that? Oh, no, it's such an interesting conversation because I'm sure that you follow Michael Kitsis out I of do. the U.S. And yeah. he's been running a series of two, perhaps, about the using writing a book as a marketing technique if you're a planner. And he actually said in his most recent post on this issue that a book can be thought of like a 200-page business card which is kind of a common expression that you hear people saying. So do you make money on the book? No. (laughs) And people who write books, like if you have the idea, I will write this book as a source of side income, it's unlikely to be a source of side income. You're paid in royalties. I do get royalties, but there's certainly not enough to allow me to retire. I'm no J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I wasn't thinking it was that kind of money, but uh, (laughs) yeah, Lori Power, is. she's a group benefits rep out here. And, you know, she has a book that I very much think of as her sort of, you know, 200 page business card or her on the podcast that uh, Michael does with Carl Richards, they call it, I think, a $4 business card, right? Yeah, I love that. I'll, I'll actually include the link to that podcast in the show notes here, or to Michael's articles too. And I was just curious if there's a big difference between sort of the output you have. And, and of course, Moshe has a bunch of books. Yep. He's very prolific. Yeah, absolutely. I have a few of his books on my shelf sitting in front of me here. So now you do also a fair bit for Globe and Mail, for Money Sense and so forth. And I think when you came into it, there weren't that many folks. There was a Jonathan Chevro, but he didn't come from a financial planning background. He really comes from, as I understand it, a, a journalism background. Now we have quite a few people. I you know, could point to Jason Heath or uh, Jim Yee would have been getting started right about the same time as you a few others. Do you find that it's crowded now or is there uh, just enough demand for it that, that we sort of meet that? <laughs> another, another super interesting question because 
there's been a couple of things happening over the last 10 years. Now, I don't come from a journalism background. I have no formal training in writing. Like, I don't have a journalism degree or an English degree. But part of what's happening is that, you know, newspapers have been shedding employees, but they still need to deliver a newspaper every day. So how do you get the words that you need to fill the pages or fill the web screens of your subscribers? And one of the ways that mainstream media has solved that problem is to use people who are not journalists to provide content. And this is a bit of a tricky subject. So one of the risks that you have when you're using a person to provide content who is not a journalist and so is looking to make money from another means is that you have content that solves a problem or that poses a problem that can be solved by them for product sale. So when you look at financial media coverage, and I'm not pointing to any specific, this is a general trend across mainstream media, that when you have problems, and we can talk about low-income retirement, for example, that don't have a product solution, those topics tend to get overlooked. Now, the low-income retirement, you know, the people reading the Globe and Mail or the Financial Post, that's not the Post's or the Globe and Mail's target market. So they probably wouldn't be covering that issue in great detail anyway. I mean, just as a, it's not who they're speaking about or to. But when they're relying on this non-journalistic content, that's an issue that gets very short shrift. I agree with that. I have my particular least favorite writer at one of the national publications where these articles show up and you can see it's very much about, you know, selling a product and sort of this person tends to package it as financial advice. And I always think that's a little bit of a, a conflict of interest. And The issue for me is that it narrows, you know, it inadvertently or stealthily kind of leads you along a path of, ah, oh, let's talk about this interesting problem. Oh, look, the solution that's available is to purchase product X. That that provides this, you know, this benefit that clearly you would recognize as a benefit. So a lot of that stuff is, I, I would agree with you, is kind of, and it's not a lot. From time to time, I read stuff and I think, this is really advertorial. This is not a complete examination of the issue. But that's something that media really struggles. No, it's, media is struggling. It's an industry that's really undergoing huge transition. And they're trying to solve for how do I still get, you know, interesting, compelling content out there. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't blame sort of the, the media side. That's not my concern. And I think you're right. Like the issue is to just have to produce enough content that people are going to read or people are going to buy your paper anyways, or people are going to click on your website. Now, I'm curious about, would you have any comments for somebody who, let's say, has the opportunity to go on a local radio show or, you know, to do a, say, an advice type column in a in a local paper? Do you think there's any Anything that you can provide that's helpful for folks that would be given that opportunity? I do think that if you're an advisor and you're looking to connect with people, I think that doing media is, is a fantastic idea. And it solves the problem that we were just discussing, which is what are these websites going to put up every day? Um, and I do think that, you know, if you're straightforward about I'm here's my issue or here's my case study, then I'm and here's how I solved it. There's tons of room for that. It's a great idea. 
uh, it's when it's presented as journalistic content that I think that we're on a little bit more shaky ground. That's fair. Now, I know, uh, just to completely switch gears here, I know before you got into financial planning, you had a, a really completely unrelated set of careers. I think your education is in STEM. I don't know exactly what what you did there, but and then you also did some policy work beforehand. Can you just chat about that a little bit and how that relates maybe to the work you do in financial planning today? Yeah, this is one of these stories that I have to work hard to be, you know, concise. But I think it's a good example of how people can come to financial planning from many, many different paths. So what we think about, you know, the CFP is going to require an undergraduate degree starting as at 2022, 2023? Yeah, kind of. 2022 kind of 2024 depends on your years of experience but yes yeah so you know then there was a question about well is there going to be a requirement for this to be a business degree or a finance degree or maybe even a math degree but i think that financial planning is one of those fields where you can come at it from many different angles and be successful so i have an undergraduate degree in environmental studies from the university of waterloo my dad was a prof there so there was no question that his kids were all going to go there. <laughs> and during the course of my four-year undergraduate degree, I spent a semester abroad in India with 12 other students on this development trip because, I don't know, we were looking at environmental studies issues and we had a prof who was willing to take us. And by the end of that trip, I was, you know, very committed to working on development role, but in Canada, because I felt that I am Canadian, I can vote here, you know, I don't speak Hindi, I'm not going to be a productive, I, I, it's not denigrating people who do international development, I just really felt like there's work to do at home. So here I am, I'm a Waterloo co-op student, I thought, okay, how I'm going to express this is I'm going to get a job that's somehow related to northern development in Canada or to Indigenous people. And I got this co-op work term working for the Department of, Ind well, this is what it was called at the time, the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs. And this was at a time when the federal government had just announced a huge federal policy to enter into negotiations with individual and collective First Nations to replace the Indian Act with individually negotiated self-government agreements. So I worked for the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs for five years as a co-op student and then as on a series of term contracts. In that policy area, I got to visit many different First Nations. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity that many, you know, non-Aboriginal Canadians like me don't have. And then a cherished boss that I had left to start a consulting firm. And after about, I don't know, six months, he said, I've got more work than I can handle. Would you consider leaving your role? And I wasn't full-time. I was on these, you know, renewable six-month contracts. And I thought, okay, this seems like an exciting new adventure. And then I worked with that guy, but just as a, you know, we each had our full proprietorship for 10 years for an Aboriginal organization in Ontario, seven communities all along the Trent Southern Waterway that were engaged in a land claims negotiation, a Supreme Court case, and these negotiations to replace the Indian Act with individually negotiated self-government agreements. So how does that get me to financial planning? <laughs> well, along the way, I had children, and I didn't want to commit to the level of travel that I was doing. So I had the second baby, and I was like, I got I to gotta transition to something else. And I, I had always loved personal finance. And I, I know Rona Birnbaum, and I had a conversation with her. I'm thinking about getting into personal finance. And she's like, you'd be great at that. So I thought, oh, I have, like, the blessing of somebody respected. 
And I thought, well, the first thing I better do is get a CFP because then I'll be hireable. So I had an infant and a toddler and I got up every morning sometime between four and five and did coursework for a couple hours so that I could spend the rest of the day in my kit with my kids. I did it through ITSI. I did the courses, did the exams, and then I went out and found myself a job as a planner. Perfect. I mean, that's a, it's a common enough sort of story about entry into this industry. I run into a fair number of primarily with women who, when they have kids, they say, I, I need something that I can, you know, that gives me flexible work hours, gives me some control over my schedule. I, in your case, removes the travel requirement. So yeah, that's good. I do like the career that way. I wish that's a message that we had more of in this industry. I think the other, you know, to your point about women looking for flexible hours, the flexibility cannot be overestimated. It is such a fundamental part of how this career can work for people. The other piece, though, is the personal connection with people. Like you're helping individuals. And I think that that's what drew me to personal finance. I'd always been interested in personal finance. But the idea that instead of working with communities, I wanted to work sort of one-on-one with people and have tangible results from that. It's, it's not that dissimilar from development work in the sense that you're, you know, that you have this helping orientation, at least for me, that's absolutely the orientation that I have versus an orientation like I love numbers. I love talking about, you know, investment returns. I'm not that interested in the investing side. I am super interested in the personal side of personal finance. Yeah, I definitely run into a fair number of people who have a sort of like a helper profession mentality that end up in this business. And, you know, sometimes like engineers, right, who have who have that mentality and end up here because they can sort of scratch both itches that way, I think. Now, switching gears again here. So, well, this is one of the ways that I connect with you fairly regularly now, but you're heavily involved with the Financial Planning Association Canada, FPAC. I'm not sure what the proper branding is now, Alexandra. You'll have to correct it's me. FPAC. But I'm hoping you can chat a little bit about that organization and the role you see it filling. So I'm sure that you know this is really the brainchild of Jason Pereira, who is, and I'm lucky to have been connected to Jason, another Jason, <laughs> through my work with Moshe, because Jason did an MBA in Moshe's program at York. And uh, I guess I met Jason Pereira through Moshe, and we we have been great collaborators and co-conspirators ever since. But Jason has been, you know, really fired up about the associations in the U.S. So in Canada, we have financial planning associations, but there is no one body that attempts to unite planners of kind of every stripe to raise the standards for the profession. And I, I know that every organization that it currently exists would say, no, no, that's, we absolutely do that. But that is the only mandate of FPAC. We're not, we don't do CE. We don't develop standards for the profession. We don't do certifications. There's no other thing that we do. This is simply a member-driven organization to promote principally the fiduciary standard among advisors for Canadians. Yeah, I'm curious about this you're not attached to any particular firm today. So the fiduciary thing, I think is, I'm going to say it's relatively straightforward for somebody who is doing 
a fee-only engagement. I would never say that a fee-only engagement is absent conflicts of interest, which is something I hear sometimes. But I, I think the fiduciary thing is a little more of a challenge, and I think it's something that the industry has to come to terms with, given that the vast majority of people who would carry CFP certification in Canada do hang their shingle at a firm where they have proprietary offerings. Is this a problem you've given much thought to, Alexandra? I have. Uh, I don't know how much headway I've made. Over the last, I guess, 10, 15 years, I've actually done a significant amount of work in the United States. And the conversation about fiduciary standards is extremely well established there for a series of reasons, including that their employment standards, ERISA, I'm, I never recall what that acronym stands for, but it's the Employee Retirement Income Standards Act or something. Spells about what is it to, to have a fiduciary offering. So there's no confusion about what does that really mean in practice. In Canada, we are still in this kind of cloud of confusion about who is a fiduciary? What does it mean to be a fiduciary? What can I expect of a fiduciary? How do I know that my fiduciary has gone wrong? What actions can I take? Like, we just don't have the framework agreed to. And I think that that, you know, I say that the role of FPAC is to promote this fiduciary standard as if we know what that is, when the reality is there just isn't agreement. I guess if you could fix, let's say, one thing that would make fiduciary clearer or more obvious or more beneficial in Canada. Any thoughts about what one thing you could fix? You know, one approach, for example, would be to require that everybody providing financial advice be hold a designation that establishes a level of professional competence. And I think that that leads us directly into one of the other topics for today, which is title regulation in Ontario. Yeah, and I'll throw Saskatchewan in there too, so as not to well, forget Saskatchewan folks. Yeah. And, but Saskatchewan, yeah. they, their regulations are out. Have they not been promulgated? Huh? Uh, so they're still in the same, essentially the same position as Ontario. They're really, as I understand it, waiting for the Ontario stuff to show up to, to oh. again, list the entities. So just sort of by way of background for folks that are listening, it happens to be yesterday that Ontario released its clarifying policy or the draft of its clarifying policy now out for comment uh, with respect to, I think they're calling it companion policy. Is that what FISRA is calling it, Alexandra? I, so. I believe so. Yeah. Um, so their companion policy for the Title Protection Act and that has a lot of meat to it. I, I kind of wish that we'd maybe schedule this thing a week later so you and I could have fully digested that, Alexandra. But I know you were uh, involved, and I know somewhat through FPAC and somewhat just through your own uh, personal capacity, in some of the earlier discussions that have brought us to that point. Uh, can you chat about that a little bit? So the, the, so what is title regulation? And it's regulating who can use the title financial planner and financial advisor. So people are often shocked to know, to learn that there is no regulation. Uh, like I could walk outside my house as soon as I'm done talking to you and put up a sign that says the planner is in financial advice, five cents. It's a, as if I was in Snoopy, yeah. <laughs> Snoopy cartoon. I got the reference. Um, but yeah. 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 Nobody could, would stop me. It's not illegal. I can, I can do that. Nobody will. 
It's only when I start to sell a product, or as the Ontario Securities Regulations would say, advice in furtherance of a trade. So if I'm advising about a financial product that you should own or hold or sell, then uh, theoretically I'm subject to regulation. There's a huge amount of confusion in the marketplace about who can provide what kind of advice. And just like we talked about the rise of advisors writing for mainstream media, we have the rise of financial bloggers who are, you know, they're interested in personal finance and they're providing perspectives, insights, and advice on financial issues. So who, who do you go to? Who, how are they paid? What conflicts of interest might they, might they be subject to? These are all things that the general public doesn't understand. But where do you go to for financial advice? And how do you know that the person advising you is, has met some basic level of competence? And that it's called title protection, but it's really consumer protection. So the consultation process for this has gone on, if I recall correctly, 2014 was when the first bit of consultation documents were released. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to Google to check. I mean, it's also in concert with all of the client relationship management uh, changes. Like we, we're seeing kind of these seismic changes in the financial services industry over time. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. I, I had the same thought this morning when that came out, because that really does feel like if it ends up showing up in the character it's currently in, if, if that's what we really get, there's going to be a lot of change there. And I just will comment, Alexander's in Ontario, so the comments are perfectly correct, obviously. Um, Quebec does currently regulate and has for a couple of decades now the practice of financial planning. So if Alexandra hauled herself oh, right. uh, yeah, a thousand kilometers to her uh, northeast, she would not be able to do what she just suggested. And Absolutely correct. And British Columbia, I don't know if people know this in general, British Columbia has a tiny, tiny bit of regulation of financial planning, wherein British Columbia, if you are insurance licensed under the Insurance Council of British Columbia rules, you cannot hold out as a financial planner unless you carry a financial planning designation. So that's... Uh, do they specify what designations meet that standard? They do, yeah. So there's a specific list on the Insurance Council of BC website. I'll include that link in the show notes as well. So it's, I want to say, see, I think, I'm just going from memory here, so pardon me if I'm wrong, but it's CFP, obviously, CLU, RFP, and I believe PFP is on the list as well. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic between, you know, there's a tension in society of how much regulation is enough and are we over-regulating? The example that's often used is that of barbers, barbers, hairdressers, that you require training and licensing. And really, cutting hair is a very low-risk activity. It's not likely to harm, and even if it did theoretically harm a client, it's temporary, you know, hair will grow back. It's hard to know what the right amount of regulation is. But in addition to all the other changes we've touched on, one of the changes that we are seeing and will continue to see is greater and greater individual responsibility for personal financial planning. So with the demise of defined benefit pensions, people cannot, there is no other body that's going to take care of this for you unless you're in one of those professions that still has a DB pension. 
So I think that the need for regulation is growing as the responsibility for individuals is grows at the same time. Yeah, I know I've seen you comment on this previously, and I've read others who comment on it. I don't think it's something that uh, a lot of people necessarily make the connection around, but it, that demise of defined benefit pensions, and, and now I think a whole bunch of other market forces, but I think you're absolutely right to point initially to the demise of DB pensions as the sort of primary driver, the original driver for individual financial advice. Now, just switching gears again here, you're one of the folks that I can, like if I have a pension question, you're my go-to for pension questions, Alexander. I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, <laughs> I sent you a couple over the last few months here. And how do you stay, especially like I've seen, you know, I sent you a BC pension question maybe a month or so ago. I don't know if you remember that or not, but yep. what do you do to stay on top of that? And I find with pensions, this is especially problematic because, you know, you get like in Alberta, I can't, I think we're five different provincial acts that deal with pensions, with employer pensions to some extent. So how do you sort of stay on top of all of that? What's your, what's your toolbox for that? It's impossible to stay on top of all of it, right? So I think the first step is to acknowledge, you know, this isn't, that isn't going to happen. I can't, I don't know everything and I can't know everything. However, uh, the standards are generally speaking relatively consistent across the country. So it's kind of like I kind of know the map, the overall shape of the map, the individual GPS to get where I'm going. I'm going to probably have to look that up. And I do devote a significant amount of time every quarter to reviewing what changed. I have a you know professional network of people, peers who I communicate with, actuaries, other people in the pension world, people working on IPPs. But I, I am the current contributing editor, along with David Beale. David is, of course, the planner who developed this TPP calculator, which you can also put in the show notes. <laughs> but David and I are the current contributing editors to a product from Thompson Writers called The Guide to Personal Financial Planning. And this is a three-volume, I don't know, it's probably 1,500 pages manual for planners. And every quarter we update it, so we spend a couple days kind of running through let's read all the let's go to all the pension websites that's i handle the pension stuff so i'll go to all the regulators websites i'll look i just updated just i think last month all the pension benefit standards for every jurisdiction across canada it took me several days because i went and i looked okay what's the website you know what's new since this chart was last updated it's all about when can you retire and take a pension what are the standards for commuting to Alira? What are the options for unlocking Alira? Those are the things that people want to know about. So one of the appendices in this giant three-volume set is this compendium of pension benefit standards across the country. The short answer is there is no short answer. It takes time. And I mean, I find that's to be the subject matter expert. You can't just sort of say, well, you know, flip to page 10, right? It's not yeah. like that. There's, I find it's always the way that you've got these, all these tentacles sort of working at that uh, expertise, right? And there's so many different types of pensions. I mean, you know, we say DB, but there's target, target benefit plans and there's multi-employer pension plans and every pension plan is different. Like there is no one, you know, photocopy that people are saying, oh yeah, just take that pension from that place and we'll use that. Everyone, especially if they've got a union negotiated component, has very specific 
criteria. So you just have to read the actual pension document. Yeah. So actually, just by coincidence, yesterday was a pension day in my CFP core curriculum. And yeah, people get frustrated. We They ask these questions. They say, well, I have this client who did this and say, well, in the end, the only way to know is to <laughs> read the actual pension document. And, and even then, that's often not sufficient. So you guys need to get in touch with the pension administrator. And maybe you need to get in touch with the Canada Revenue Agency. Yeah. And we talked about making two or three calls sometimes because there was some stories of getting the incorrect answer the first time around. So kind of get three answers. And if you get the same answer twice, you're right. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. Um, There's a lot of subtleties in how the question is asked. I mean, it may not be that the question was answered incorrectly, but the assumptions about what some nuance of something meant were not clear. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. That's a, that's a good point, actually. We shouldn't always blame the person giving the answer, right? Now, you were mentioned earlier, and this is actually where you and I did first connect, now that my memory is uh, restored here, and this is around pro bono financial planning efforts. You talked about low income, but I'm interested in this. I know you've been working with uh, John Singleton here. And I'm just curious to hear you chat a little bit about some of your background here, some of the work you've done, where you see this going. You know, it's hard to know where I started, but I mean, I've talked about kind of my community development experience and orientation. When I, so I, I do have an undergraduate degree in environmental studies. And then I went and I did a, a graduate, a, a master of arts in political studies, because like one of my quote unquote realizations in that development trip in India was that these questions are ultimately political as much as they are about resource constraints. So I thought, oh, I better learn about this, you know, policy stuff. And I went and I did this Master of Arts in Political Studies, and I looked at, uh, you know, how did Canada's social welfare state get established? So how did we end up where we are? Things like, why do we have an old age pension? And what was the start of that? And what's the baby bonus? You know, you, these things you hear about kind of your whole life, and you know, where did they come from? But the kind of the development of the overall social welfare state. And those programs exist to solve the problems of people who need help, right? The baby bonus, we agree that women with very young children should not be compelled to work. So we provide maternity leave if you're an employee, paternity leave, the baby bonus, we inject capital in to smooth the resources available over their lifetime. And how does this relate to low income? It's that you can't just do financial planning as though everybody has access to financial resources evenly, sufficiently over their lifetime. There are people who don't. And how do they fit into the plan of, you know, how do you make sure that life is going to work out for them? So I had the very good fortune to be introduced to John by Guy Anderson. And John does these extremely popular seminars through the library system in Toronto about retiring on a low income. And because I'm kind of a policy nerd and because I have a focus on retirement, this was like a natural place for me to, you know, expend time and energy understanding how do all these programs fit for low-income people and especially how low-income retirees or future low-income retirees can get good advice when the financial services industry is largely not set up to help them. So, I mean, that I think begs the question is, how do people, how do you actually overcome that challenge? And I think the work that, that John's been doing primarily through public library systems and not just in Toronto now, right? As I understand it, he's gone to some other places, I think only in Ontario. So, you know, if I'm 
whatever, 57 years old. I live in Calgary. I make whatever, $38,000 a year. I have maybe you know, a, a nominal amount of CPP coming to me. I have no meaningful pension. Maybe I've got a few thousand dollars in a group RSP from some point in the past. What's the solution here? Who's going who's gonna to help me to navigate my retirement issues? Well, my, you know, my experience has been that it's community organizations. So I've, for 12 years, I've been on the board of my local community health center. This community health center model in Ontario is funded by OHIP, so funded by provincial healthcare system to provide, to ensure that healthcare is accessible to people that would otherwise experience barriers in accessing healthcare. So there are, I think, 14 CHCs throughout the, throughout Toronto. And they each have a specific focus. So, for example, there is a CHC for, for recent immigrants who may not speak English. There's a CHC for Aboriginal people. And the CHC that, where I volunteer is focused on people with complex chronic illnesses, and a particular focus on diabetes, within the geographical area of East Toronto. And we have community health workers, and they work directly with our clients to help them navigate these issues. And so the CHC, the community health workers, need to go and get trained. And so they go and get trained at Woodgreen, which is another community services organization. So there's like low-income tax clinics. There's helping people. A lot of times it's things as basic as I don't have a social insurance number or I don't know my card. But getting people into the tax system has been a way that they can start to navigate eligibility for income support. I don't know whether that sounds like a complete answer. There isn't really a... There isn't a go-to. I mean, credit unions have been, who serve as a kind of a different clientele than banks. Credit unions have been good at getting members trained in answering questions that are not about how can I buy a mutual fund, but more like how can I access this government program. But there isn't a source of comprehensive and uh, accessible training for people in the financial services field on this specific issue. And I think this is where I run into a challenge with this. I think even if there was that source of comprehensive training, I think it becomes challenging for your typical sort of self-employed financial advisor to even really know where to start with something like that. So, the, you know, this community health center model you're referring to, that seems like a potential inroads for somebody who would actually want to do that kind of work? Would that be fair? I get asked this question quite often is how do I get a non-sales role helping people with their finances but not targeting high income earners? And there isn't an easy answer. I mean, you could theoretically have a financial planning practice that focused on low income clients. It would be more challenging than because their ability and willingness to pay is constrained. And I'm not aware of any kind of grants or anything like that that would step in and pay you to do it. But it's when you're working, it's one thing. Like in the situation you gave, the person's 57, what they hopefully will be able to do is continue to work until they're eligible for the income supports that start at 60 and then at 65. Because if you are a low-income worker, not just a low-income person, but a low-income worker, as long as you can make it to CPP eligibility, then 90, 100% of your, of your working income is replaced in retirement. It's for people that go into retirement in debt. It's for people who don't make it to 60 or 65 because they're ill or become disabled. 
those are the people that really are, you know, those are the problem areas where how do you get to once they hit 65 and become eligible for OAS and then GIS as well. Yeah, and I know GIS works well in this case, but I, I would suggest another group to add to your sort of list of potential concerns is people newer to Canada, right? If you have somebody who comes here when they're 52 or 53, then your OAS and CPP are both going to be adversely affected. Of course, another issue of complexity is depending on the social security treaty we have with the country you came right. from. We have all of these programs. And I wrote an article for the Global Mail a few years ago about the CPP death benefit that why is it what it is, you know, how, how did it design, get designed? And I interviewed Joe Nunes, who is an actuary in Windsor, Ontario, and his comment was, well, the CPP was designed for a world that largely no longer exists, that it was one income earner, the male, who was attached to the labor force from kind of 18 to 60 or 65, uh, then they die and they leave a survivor pension to the, the non-working spouse. But we, we haven't had those. That's not been the norm for 40 or 50 years at this point. Um, but the problem with CPP, I mean, and obviously we've just amended CPP and dramatically changed it. But every single change takes money, right? If we wanted to keep the death benefit. So it used to be that the death benefit was, oh, I'm going to forget, actually. It was six months of the CPP pension to a maximum of $2,500. Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Right, and the issue was because that $2,500 had never been indexed. The real value was decaying over time. And now the under amendments that came into force, I think starting on January 1st, 2019, the death benefit is a flat $2,500. doesn't matter what your pension was when you retired. Oh, and it's taxable. <laughs> My comment is we kept the death benefit at $2,500, and of course that will continue to decay even further with inflation. But to make it different would cost us somewhere else in the program. Yeah, it's a great point, right? So you can add inflation on that, but then your your premiums have to increase, right? That's, I, I was grateful for that change. It's one of the rare changes that let me actually reduce the size of the content in the textbook. So, <laughs> yeah. That's true. No more calculations required. A yeah, flat 2,500. Yeah. And just to prove I do know something about Quebec, it's been a flat 2500 for QPP, I think, since inception. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, I'll chalk that up to my uh, lesson learned for the day. I like it. So then just going back to the, the low-income side, I, I have a little story here. I don't know if you run into this or not, but you know I do some of this work here in Edmonton, right? I'm part of a network of Ooh. pro bono planners here in Edmonton, and we had a member, somebody who was doing this work, and she's an IROC registrant, and she was told, her compliance department initially said, we're not sure. They went to IROC, and they actually told her that she can't do this work. Now, she deals in a particularly vulnerable population, but that's going to be the right. case for any pro bono folks. And what I found bizarre about this is the population she's dealing with, they would never, short of economic miracles here have the opportunity yeah. to become her clients it's just such a I don't know. so this is under outside business activity regulation yeah exactly yeah but i have seen advisors uh, get constrained around charitable activities that have nothing to do with financial planning so i don't know whether it's that they felt that these people could potentially be clients or whether it's just this is an outside business activity that's considered to be too far and we're going to make you stop it. I've seen, I've seen ridiculous decisions. 
Yeah, I, I read the result of her compliance department's correspondence with IROC, and it very much focused on vulnerable population and the idea that she would somehow be able to take advantage of them financially. Uh, I mean, honestly, she would have to improve their financial situations so much in order just to be able to, for them to have enough money that she could take advantage of them. So, But yeah. I don't want to leave this topic of pro bono without noting that the FP Canada has is in the midst of launching a pro bono initiative. And my understanding is that when they, I mean, as a CSP, you will have received this email as well, the call for volunteers, and that they had a really overwhelming response. And they are planning on rolling out a structure that will allow planners to provide pro bono advice uh, through using MPP's office in a couple of provinces, uh, not Quebec, I don't, and definitely Ontario, but I don't remember the full list. But the idea is to connect planners and planners' expertise with people who are seeking that advice. Yeah, and I'm excited for that offering. I, actually, I'm just going to correct one thing here so I don't get my so I am not actually a CFP professional. I don't carry the designation, oh. Alexandria. Yeah, I uh, Yeah, I know. I get that a lot, but uh, I never you take, actually you take your had, courses. <laughs> <laughs> I've written the exam, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I never actually had the client fee. When I passed the exam, I had oh, no right. facing time. So the rules have sort of bounced around around this a little bit over the years, and. Honestly, there's there's this weird thing where, and this ties back to something we chatted about earlier in the call, about once every three months, I get a question from a CFP professional, from a student, about something that under the standards of professional responsibility would actually probably require me to turn that person into FP Canada. Yes, yeah. And so I, I always have this kind of weird conflict mm -hmm. of interest. So I, I don't know, it's a, it's a tough one because... I'd like to have certification. I don't know if I would meet all the criteria today, but it could put me in a conflict with some of the student questions I get. So, Well, I do. We talked about this earlier. I do do uh, fee-for-service financial planning or advice-only planning. And because I read a comment recently on Twitter who talked about planners who don't, or people, certificates, so people who hold the designation but don't work with individual clients, and they call them talkers. Like, you're, you're not a doer, you're a talker. And I thought, oh, I, I didn't, I hadn't thought about this. I mean, I do like, I mean, I genuinely love working with individual clients, but it's not the only thing that I do. And I don't even know that it's the majority. It's probably half of what I do. So I thought, oh, am I just a talker? But there's, there's roles, I think, for every kind of, and, and as we've been talking about over the last little while, it's extremely challenging to stay abreast of all the developments in your specific area, right? So it does require that very concentrated focus. It's, it's hard to be a generalist in this industry, I think. Yeah, I think if you're going to be a generalist, you really have to like specialize in being a generalist, right? You have to, mm. you have to say, that is my role. And maybe a big part of that is knowing the whatever 25 subject matter experts that you have to have sort of in your back pocket to to really be an effective generalist? Well, I think the, the role or the, the, the hallmark of a good generalist is one that realizes the extent of their knowledge. It's like, I don't know the answer, and I've deliberately built a network that can help me get the answer. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I guess before we wrap up, do you have any last-minute comments about anything we talked about, about you know the pro bono side, where I know you have a lot of passion, or about the regulatory side, or even about 
the uh, content creation side of things? If I got to sort of deliver one message to whoever might be listening to this, is that one of the comments or the questions I get most frequently is, how can I break into this? How can I develop a fulfilling career? I don't want to just be a salesperson. And my answer is, you know, there is no laid out path for you. You're going to have to create something. But financial planning is an ever-present need for people. And there's a huge range. of. If you want to help people and you're interested in finances, there is a huge range of roles that you could potentially play. You could create a startup that delivers advice in some unique way. You could join another startup. You could become someone like me who's delivering advice through media and creating content. The sky is the limit. If you think, I don't want to be a salesperson in the bank, there's nothing limiting you to doing that. I agree with that. That mirrors nicely, actually. Um, I don't know if you know Derek Dedman or not. No. So he actually used to be staff at FP Canada. He was the... Oh, I do know him. Yeah, okay, perfect. So now he's in we Ottawa. We were together. I did a, I did a week of a, a question bank development oh, with him. Of I just course. forgot his last name. Yeah, perfect. So he just authored a post on LinkedIn that pretty much gave the identical message, sort of mm. you know, have a plan, but be flexible. There's lots of opportunity out there. That's a really good message, Alexandra. I 100% agree with that. And I see tons of different business models with the exposure I have to different students. So uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Any last minute comments? Nope, just thank you so much. Okay, that's again a far broad ranging set of stuff we covered off there, which was good. I quite enjoyed that. I learned some things, which is always nice. Alexandra talked about ERISA in there. ERISA is the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. And it's well known among American financial planners because it's really the first place that there is a fiduciary standard set out. It really only pertains to retirement planning, but it means that when a financial advisor in the United States is giving advice about retirement accounts specifically, that there is a fiduciary obligation there when you're giving investment advice about retirement accounts. Now, this has been a struggle for American regulators. They're dealing with this as we speak. We have a, a similar struggle in Canada. I would suggest that the current, and we talked about it in the interview, the current uh, legislation that's now going through consultation in Ontario, and by the way, have a look at it. It's in the show notes for today. Have a look at it and submit comment. I would suggest that it's worthwhile submitting comment to FISRA. They want to hear those comments have a look at that. That's another example of this sort of how do we hold out to consumers and is there a fiduciary standard or some other standard? That specific Ontario legislation doesn't get into the fiduciary question, but I would suggest that it's closely related to that. Now, Alexandra and I talked about FPAC. We're actually both FPAC members. I'm an associate member. She's a board member. I want to talk about this because it's a question that I run into a little bit is the different financial planning associations. So some people say, well, really, what about FP Canada? Don't they do this? And at one time, it's true that FP Canada's constituency was financial planners. However, in 2009, what used to be the Financial Planners Standards Council rebranded and became the Financial Planning Standards Council. And that change meant that they were no longer intending to be seen as a body for financial planners, but rather a body for financial planning. That is, they're really sort of, I would suggest, business practice neutral 
And what they care about is that Canadians are getting the best financial planning that they can get. So yes, if you hold the CFP certification, you pay a due every year to FP Canada, you pay to belong to that organization, and you adhere to the standards of professional responsibility. But, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, I think FP Canada does this right, but FP Canada doesn't represent sort of the interest of financial planners, they represent the interest of financial planning. Then we have CIFP, the Canadian Institute of Financial Planners, and this is a good organization. They represent, and they're, to be fair, they're one of my competitors in the education space, but anyways, CIFP does a good job. They put on a conference every year for financial planners. I think the biggest challenge with CIFP is that because they have their own set of designations, the RRC, and then they promote their own course material leading to CFP certification, that they are not necessarily sort of for financial planners, but really they're for their membership. And their membership then largely comprises people who did their curriculum through CIFP. So I would suggest that CIFP is not a sort of broad net of financial planners, but rather it's people who came through that program and now maintain a, an ongoing association with that organization. And that's fine. It's just that they're not for the broad financial planning community. There have been some efforts. You'll see some staff from CIFP periodically comment in some of the industry publications, and that's good. That's good advocacy and so forth. IAFP, the Institute for Advanced Financial Planning, this organization runs the RFP designation, the Registered Financial Planner, which is a, a financial planning designation that not a ton of people carry, but they run a really good conference every year. And the IAFP, again, really is for the RFP and not, I would suggest, casting this kind of broad net for financial planners. So that's where FPAC comes in. And FPAC, I think, really stood up based on what you see in the United States with the FPA, the Financial Planning Association there. And those organizations, I would suggest both FPA and FPAC, really do exist to give financial planners, and it doesn't matter about where you started off or what business model you operate under, but really to give financial planners a home and then to advocate for the practice of financial planning. So I hope that's a helpful distinction. I hope I've been fair to all the organizations in there. Like I said, at least one of them is a competitor of ours. So I hope I've removed any bias from that. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. 
We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks when we'll have David Field on. David is going to talk about developing the CPP calculator. This is something that I've been promoting heavily on my social media feeds and I think really fills a good gap in financial planning advice. Looking forward to chatting with David both about his financial planning practice and about launching a technology company while working as a financial planner. So please do again join us in two weeks and we'll get into some depth again there on Canada Pension Plan. Maybe we'll move off of Canada Pension Plan for our uh, fourth episode of the season, but we covered it today with Alexandra and we'll cover it next call again with David. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.